most glorious introduction to the seven major feasts in the nation of Israel that God has given seven festivals or feasts or seasons of remembrance that God has given to Israel and only God can do something so marvelous and beautiful this God as is said in Leviticus 22 in the very last verse he's the God who brought them out of the land of Egypt to be their God he said I am the Lord the God who delivered and Leviticus 23 introduces the various feasts and they're all contained in this chapter these what the Bible says appointed times just like in our lives appointed times God redeemed the people from uh, slavery from darkness from bondage and our lives were all confused and in vain seems like grinding every day the same old thing no matter how many different clothing one can wear and how many different places one can travel and how many different things one can do it seems like we're stuck with the same you same me the same person just in different outfits doesn't change the person at all and so many people try to change how they feel and who they are by what they can put on their bodies what they can do externally doesn't happen but when God comes he redeems a person with his holy blood every sin every sin gets washed away and his light comes in and the darkness leaves and we're able to step into God's promises these feasts are uh, both the historical record these appointed times for the people to remember who they are you see we need an identity And there's only one God he's the creator of the universe and he gives us identity if we don't know our roots we can't know who we are if we don't know who we are we can't know what we're supposed to be doing and where we're headed only God can give us everything in salvation hallelujah these feasts show Israel forever that's why the Lord said you shall observe this always you and your children all the generations God so wonderfully put together these feasts these appointed times and seasons in the calendar year the nation of Israel so they can know where they came from who they belong to because of what God has done for them what he's doing and where they're going this promised land as we know Leviticus was written about one to two years within that time frame after they came out of the house of bondage this Egypt this dark place and they're learning more about the holiness of God who he is 
There's an education happening at the foot of the mountain there, Mount Sinai. And they're looking forward to going where? The promised land. Our promised land, the Canaan that's waiting for us. Going from the wilderness up north. We're going from this earth up north to heaven. We're on the pilgrimage. We know we've been saved from that dark country the place of the spiritually dead God woke us up he spoke to us we who are spiritually dead heard his voice we came up out of the graves with a new life hallelujah and we're walking with God his mercies praise his holy name we're headed toward heaven just like the Israelites went from Egypt south of Canaan they went to the wilderness still south of Canaan the pilgrimage and they went up north generally speaking they went up north we're headed up to glory we need to know where we came from what are we doing here who are we what are we supposed to be doing? We need to remember God is with us every day, watching everything we do, everything. But He's also with us. He's not just observing. He's a God who bears our burdens. He sees our mess-ups. Oh, Jesus. He sees our mess-ups, our failures. He helps us to get back on track. How beautiful the Lord is. In these feasts, written in Leviticus 23, the Almighty God prepares them, knowing where they came from, where they are now. He prepares them to get ready to go to the spiritual Canaan. And these seven memorable days and weeks, there are different kinds of celebrations, different lengths of time they're all designed to give identity purpose and a bright hope and future with the Messiah but do they know all these things here they're just learning and so the more we look at the scriptures ourselves we learn the very same things who we really are in Christ what we're supposed to be doing how we are supposed to be living en route to being with Christ forever. Leviticus chapter 23, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, and say to them, The feasts of the Lord, which you shall proclaim to be holy convocations, these are my feasts, the appointed festivals, these are official days for holy assembly as we see in the New Living Translation. The first mention is not really a feast but it's a picture of that which is perpetual. This Sabbath which is a rest, God's rest. The Sabbath which we have heard and we've spoken about when we've studied Hebrews 
in the New Testament and also in Exodus as well as in Leviticus so far, the Sabbath is entering into God's rest, which means we stop doing our own thing. We realize we belong to someone else. We're his exclusively to live our lives, not for selfish reasons, but in honor of the one who gave his all for us. Six days shall work be done, Leviticus 23.3, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, a holy convocation. You shall do no work on it. It is the Sabbath of the Lord in all your dwellings. We heard the message from Daniel just on Tuesday. And the previous week regarding the Sabbath and even Tuesday's message relating to this life this life of yes trials but through it we have this deep peace that only Jesus can give and no one who hasn't experienced the love of God in the midst of the heaviest trials can ever understand what it means. You really have to be in Christ to experience this supernatural love that comes through, the peace. I Someone was reminding me, I don't know if it was family or someone else who knew our background more, but back in 1998, June of 98, when we had the car accident with the Toyota Corolla, my first car at that time, this totaled right there, not too far from Jacoby Hospital in the Bronx, where we lived at that time, New York City. It seemed like time froze. The accident should have destroyed us, both myself and Pastor Kerba, before we had any children. And the devil is trying to destroy what God had for us and through us by his mercy. But I remember that very night when we were, actually it was my mother, that's right, the other day, Sunday, my mother called, and uh, she's wondering how we're doing, and we haven't talked in a while. And then a few days later, I had the opportunity to call her, and uh, somehow that came up. She reminded us how God kept us, because she had come to see us with my dad, and they observed me in the hospital with five different doctors overnight, and they're very concerned that some bone fragment or something would just travel up to the heart and cause tremendous damage and problems. But that night, I slept like a baby in the hospital in the morning and walked away without a scratch and passed as well. But I, I remember the peace that I had, and that's the point. God's presence as 
also revealed in these feasts, in, beginning with the Sabbath, a perpetual feast, if you will, a state of celebration and rest, to the peace that passes all understanding. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives to you. The world thinks they can have peace if they have more of that green stuff. More money, they think more power, more pleasure, maybe more peace too. It doesn't work that way. Many people have tried it. They seem the more of it they have without God. They don't have the wisdom to know what to do with it or to get it honestly. And they have no peace. With the peace that we can have through the trials. And that night in June of 98 when that happened, I was coming, we were coming home, Pascal and I, from a service. I believe it was Times Square Church at that time. And the founder of Team Challenge, David Wilkerson, was there at that time, alive and still preaching there. And we were coming home. My mother reminded, God bless her memory, 23 years ago, that you were coming from church, she said. I said, that's right. And it was an evening service. I believe it was midweek. And I had the greatest peace I'd probably ever experienced up until that point. It was a supernatural peace because all week, all week the Lord was working in my heart. Every message I was hearing on the radio or reading or at church seemed to all talk about worship. All talked about faithfulness of God and faithfulness of His children in response to His goodness. And I was learning about Abraham and Job, Jacob, these people, when they were going through trials, Abraham, when he was called to Mount Moriah and he had to offer his son on the altar, as he was going there with his son, he left the, the servants there. He said, I am the lad, I am the lad, I am the boy, my son will come back. We're going to worship God. Job, when he went through his trials, he worshipped God. Absolutely foreign to the world. It's a work of grace that comes in to cause us to look heavenward. Not just for help. Oh, the human heart can cry because we need him. We're frail. We're fragile. And God can help us anytime, anywhere. He's available 24-7. Hallelujah. But there's another response, worship. And then David and Jacob. Jacob, when he was dying, he prophesied. He fulfilled God's will and he leaned on his staff. He got himself on the bed. He sat up, mustered all his strength. He was going to go out glorifying God and fulfilling his will and speaking a prophetic word over all his sons, which came true and is coming true. But he worshipped God. David, when he went through the loss of the child due to his own sin, when he repented thoroughly and they came and told him, 
the news he's he worshipped God. You know why? Because God is a God of resurrection. He's a God of new life. But the seven feasts in Leviticus 23 is prefaced by the Sabbath. The Sabbath observance. A complete rest, an official day for Holy Assembly. Leviticus 23.3 It is the Lord's Sabbath and it must be observed wherever you live. In addition to the Sabbath, these are the Lord's appointed festivals, the official days for a holy assembly that are to be celebrated at their proper times each year. Continuing with the New Living Translation, Passover or Peshach and the festival or feast of unleavened bread. The Lord's Passover begins at sundown on the fourth day of the first month the calendar started when they were being redeemed from Israel God gave them a calendar for this country for this nation these tribes there were going to be a great nation he started the calendar and it was on the month of Nisan on the 14th day at sundown the Passover begins. As we know, they had to observe this lamb, this innocent but unblemished lamb. It had to be a perfect sacrifice. The Lord's Passover. On the next day, the 15th day of the month, the Lord said, you must begin celebrating the festival of unleavened bread. This festival to the Lord continues for seven days and during that time the bread you must uh, you eat must be made without yeast. We're going to look at the meanings of these feasts not only for the Israelites then but for the Israelites in Messiah Jesus and for us Gentiles who've been grafted into the olive tree which speaks of the nation of Israel. God's chosen people. We get grafted into them. Both Jew and Gentile in Messiah becoming one body. One new man, as the Bible says. So all of these are relevant to us. And the way they're relevant is not because we've come into a new country, Israel, or into a new citizenship with the nation of Israel. And therefore, by default, like marriage, we inherit the other family. Not simply that. This is a living word. We actually partake in the life that God has given to Israel through the man who came from the tribe of Judah in Israel, the Mashiach, Jesus Christ, Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus, the Messiah, the Anointed One, we live the feasts. We've spoken a little bit about the parallel, about our own lives, redeemed out of bondage, out of darkness, out of confusion. Maybe somebody's in confusion today. Maybe someone is recovering from confusion today. And it's like you just are trying to come out or you come out barely and 
what does the Lord say? The blood of the Lamb. Oh, He can cleanse. He can wash us from all the confusion, all our sins, all our troubles. There's a way which seems right to a man, but the end of it is death, the Proverbs say. The Spirit of God has recorded that. There's a way that seems right to someone, but the end of it is death. But Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Apart from me, no one comes to the Father. His way is the way of righteousness. His way is the tree of life for eternity. His way always produces life. And so the applications are there for our lives because we've grafted, we've grafted into this nation, this olive tree. We who were wild, Gentiles, we didn't know God. We had no clue. We were in other religions or atheism or agnosticism or whatever ism. We were predominantly led by the devil's pessimism. Fear. That's what grips the world today. Fear over all kinds of crises. It's not to say they're not real. In one's personal life, all kinds of fear. People handle it differently, don't they? This all comes from sin. And this Feast of Unleavened Bread speaks of a life without sin. And we're going to see how it points to the Messiah in his very body. Well, this festival of unleavened bread, following the first festival or feast, this appointed time, a memorial of Passover, one day, the 14th month of the 14th day of the first month, Nisan, the very next day, the 15th day of the first month, Nisan, the Lord said, begin this week-long celebration. The next feast or festival is unleavened bread. Passover, then the feast of unleavened bread. These are the spring feasts of Israel. You have three springtime feasts and then three fall feasts. In the interim, you have a feast around spring summertime three in the spring three in the fall and one around summertime at the end of spring making seven official feasts that God in his wisdom beautiful God has given to Israel what other God have you ever heard of who gives things that are so perfect and they're prophetic and they carry life just to observe its rich meaning throughout Scripture and throughout our lives. But further, they speak life because it's God's Word. Hallelujah. We can never approach the Scriptures, even Leviticus 23, and say, well, this is the Jews, Jewish history and how they did things. It's interesting. It's fun to learn new things, you know. Now, this is life to us because all of this, was, is, and will be fulfilled in the one person about whom the whole scripture is about, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This festival of unleavened bread to the Lord continues for seven days. 
Leviticus 23.6 And during that time, the bread you eat must be made without yeast. This yeast or leaven, as we know, mostly in Scripture, not always, but mostly stands for sin. We call attention to the parable that's been misinterpreted by many people. Now, the woman who hid leaven or yeast in three measures of meal, the Lord Jesus said. And it just mysteriously permeates the whole le- the whole bread or dough. The Lord said, this is how the kingdom of God is. But mostly, it talks about evil. Sin taken away. You see, there's an obs- observation, there's an observance. There's a scrutiny. And so in our lives, we must present ourselves by the mercy of God, the work of the Holy Spirit, through the blood of the Lord Jesus. We can't do that without the blood. So salvation begins with what? Blood. Always. There's no salvation that comes with good feelings or observing different things and climbing up to mountains and meditating and trying to levitate and all these things. Genuine salvation, being saved, mankind, humankind, being saved and salvaged from the mess that we've made, from the wars and the evil desires and the destruction, total chaos and perversion. So much evil. People can buy a movie ticket and think I'm going to escape from my problems and go to La La Land for an hour or two. And what do they do in the movies? They find more corruption, more delusion. And then they may go to a bar. They may have dinner with someone and do all kinds of things and go here, go there. And before you know, they just come and stand before the King of Kings and Lord of Lords to answer for how they defied him to the face in living a rebellious, ungodly life. Oh, but God, I did some charity work. God, I did help people. You know, God, I have a good heart. No. Without the blood, every heart is dirty, no matter who it is and what they've done. Who can be clean in God's sight? How can a man cleanse his way, the Bible says? Everyone will say or speak good of themselves until God comes and finds out or reveals the inmost secrets. A fearful thing to come before God without redemption. But salvation begins with blood, the Passover. Because of that blood, we're washed clean now We need to observe that we have really died to ourselves. Died to sin, as is written in the New Testament. But how many people go to church and go and gather with other Christians, really make light of sin, maybe ignore it altogether? And You know, the moment somebody preaches about sin and repentance, in their mind, immediately they go on this autopilot. That saved by grace, Men rolling up their sleeves and all jovial, patting each other on the back, giving high fives and hugs and bear hugs. And having pastries and talking about football. And then 
Oh, yes, let's talk about God. Isn't God great? Yay, I'm blessed. You're blessed. We're all blessed. Too blessed to be stressed. So let's just pretend and... The Bible says, make sure you don't have yeast in your lives. Leaven. Make sure you don't have sin in your lives. That's a lifelong, lifetime activity God expects for every believer. To keep oneself unspotted from this world. In the first chapter of James, the end of the chapter, it says so by the Spirit of God. Pure religion. You want the real Christianity, the pure Christianity that is undefiled, is visiting widows and orphans in their distress. Yes, doing good in the name of Jesus, through the power of Jesus, with the objective of turning people to Jesus, not just giving them social benefits and physical handouts and helping hand that won't do anything for their souls. But through it, Show Christ to them, the love of God. Pure religion and undefiled, James says by the Spirit of God, is to visit orphans and widows in their afflictions. To bear the burdens of other people, as we prayed in the beginning, and so fulfill the law of Christ. But it's not independent from Christ, because any work done independent from Christ will ultimately corrupt and perish. It'll be gone. It won't do any ultimate good for anyone. But the other part of that verse in James chapter 1 it says that a person obviously a believer in James 1.27 must keep himself or herself unspotted from the world. In other words, don't let the world corrupt you. It's a responsibility. Unleavened bread speaks of our bodies, of our lives, that we should not have any sin or malice, ungodly desire. We should not be executing commands of the devil and the lust of our flesh. We're done with that. We've been washed by the blood. He says, now live right. Celebration when you're living right, isn't it? Every day is a good day because no matter what storms come, you know you're doing the right thing by God. You're doing that which is right in God's sight. So you have a clear conscience. During this time, we should not eat yeast. Jews would say, as God instructed in Leviticus chapter 23, verse 6. On the first day of the festival, all the people must stop their ordinary work and observe an official day for Holy Assembly. Now, we've spoken on this before. Although we're not Jewish, most Christians are not Jewish. Jews, Jewish Christians are actually a minority in the body of Christ. So many Gentiles have been born again, including myself, and probably you also. But we are still called to observe 
at least one day of rest. Makes total sense. And the rest is not only physical, which is good for the body. Ask any doctor, any person that is an expert, I should say, on health and wellness. The body needs to recharge. But beyond that, we need to spend time with the Lord. At least one day of the week. And preferably the first day of the week, the day of resurrection. As you'll see, the next feast here is the feast of the first fruits. A day in which God brings Christ out of the tomb, resurrection. We celebrate that on Sunday. And that day we should give to the Lord. We should give the day entirely to the Lord. That's not the day to play golf, to go catch a movie, to go have a family reunion. You see, unless Christ is in the picture. There's a celebration honoring Him. Otherwise, we're actually... desecrating that day it's not a Sabbath at all it's not a rest day at all where we meditate on the Lord and worship Him it doesn't mean that we can't go buy something we really need in the store that day well if we're able to we can try to buy those things the six days of the week just like working but if we have to get something urgently it's not a violation We're not under a strict law like that, but how we spend the day that we're supposed to worship God, especially together with other believers, will reflect on whether God is really God of our lives. Just like the tithe, which means a tenth. All of this reflects on our relationship and fellowship and worship of the living God. When we Get that paycheck and the first tenth of it, we give it to God in honor of Him. Not with a grudging heart, but a cheerful heart. Because after all, if someone earned one dollar for the whole week, as they did many, many, many years ago, just for example's sake, to give ten cents out of that dollar, the person will surely recognize the 100 cents I received was from the Lord anyway. The 10 I'm giving to the Lord belongs to the Lord. The 90 I get to keep belongs to the Lord, but He's given it to me to keep. I can give at least 10 cents. The 10th. This Sabbath was the beginning of the explanation of the feasts. The show that all of these celebrations belong to the Lord. They were supposed to wholeheartedly thank God and understand, not just the ritual, this is the month of this and that, as most Jews do today. 
They may have some understanding of the past, but they surely don't know how to apply it in the present and the future in Messiah, about whom all of these feasts point. So as we continue here, this festival of unleavened bread, verse 7, on the first day of the festival, all the people must stop their ordinary work and observe an official day for Holy Assembly. For seven days you must present special gifts to the Lord. On the seventh day the people must again stop all their ordinary work to observe an official day for Holy Assembly. God knows what he's doing. In certain times he said stop every other work. And then the Lord said to Moses, this early harvest, the barley harvest, the Lord said to Moses, give the following instructions to the people of Israel. When you enter the land I'm giving you, and you harvest its first crops. Can you imagine that? You're looking ahead, you see acres and acres and acres of land. You don't have anything to your name. You just came out of bondage. You have nothing. All of a sudden, God is saying, all these hundreds and hundreds of acres to yours. Now, as you come into this inheritance, remember who brought you here. So you can remember who you are. One of the things God kept telling them is, stay separate from the ungodly people that are there. I'm going to use you to drive them out of there. Every demon spirit, when you come to salvation in Christ, God will give you grace and help and the alertness to see how the devil still has a foothold somewhere, a toehold, a pinky hold. You're going to drive the devil out of your lives. That's salvation. Not to say I'm saved and do what the devil wants me to do. And so God was blessing them and he was giving them identity to remember where they came from through these feasts and also how to live separate, unspotted, without leaven. And when they come and enjoy the first crop, the first fruits, he says, bring the priest a bundle of grain from the first cutting of your grain harvest. When you have your job, new job, let's say, what an honor, what a desire from a believer to say, Lord, after all it's from you, I'm so joyful, Lord, to bring just a tenth. That's all, just a tenth. It's the minimum. To acknowledge, that's what tithe means, a tenth. To acknowledge all of this is from God. When the farmer goes out and he gets the yield from the land, from his cultivating the crops, from planting the crops, from watching, and the harvest comes along, they all know they're holding up that bundle of grain from the first cutting of the grain harvest. The Jews did. To honor the Lord. Verse 11, on the, <clears throat> verse 11, on the day after the Sabbath, the priest will lift it up before the Lord so it may be accepted on your behalf. On that same day, you must sacrifice a one-year-old male lamb with no defects as a burnt offering to the Lord. With it, you must present a grain offering consisting of four quarts of choice flour moistened with olive oil. 
It will be a special gift, a pleasing aroma to the Lord. All of this, the grain offering, the lamb offering, meaning, Lord, it all belongs to you. You always have this blood. They couldn't get away from it. Pointing to the blood of the Lamb of God. We need the blood. Without the blood, there's no forgiveness or putting away of our sins. Verse 13, again, it says, with it, you must present a grain offering consisting of four quarts of choice flour moistened with olive oil. It will be a special gift of pleasing aroma to the Lord. You must also offer one quart of wine as a liquid offering. Do not eat any bread or roasted grain or fresh kernels on that day until you bring this offering to your God. See how God is put first in the life. God is put first in your life. There's not only an offering of things, such as the tithe. There's an offering of one's life to be pleasing to God. Because the problem with Israel down the line was, and so with believers, if the life doesn't follow God's commandments, the sacrifice or the offering becomes a lie. And God will say, I don't want that from you. I don't want anything from you. If you don't come and present yourself as the first offering, holy, which means set apart to God. My body is off limits to Satan. My mind is off limits to Satan. My soul is off limits to Satan. The total being, my entire being, who I am, I belong to the living God. With such a consecration to God because of a separation that's occurred from the world, worldly things. There's no mixture of the pure with the impure. In other words, we're not coming to God with an offering. You know, I've seen the lamb. Imagine a, a Jew saying that, an Israeli. We have rabbinic supervision and kosher laws, laws and everything is strictly done under great scrutiny in accordance with the law. And we got a lamb, we examined it for four days and there's no defect in this lamb. It's good, take it. It's like a factory, a mill processing or processing the things needed for the sacrifice. Why did Jesus come into the temple and overthrow the tables and run them out of there? He said, you made my father's house which is supposed to be a place of prayer into a den of thieves now you're doing the offerings you're going to church you're worshipping you're singing but your heart is dirty and your hands are dirty how would you like to be served in a restaurant by a waiter who has sewage on his hands or her hands I mean the whole body is just Horribly filled with sewage. I mean, on the body. Think you lose your appetite and say, no, thank you, let's go to another place. How do you think God feels? From what he said, if we're not doing right by him in our lives, 
What does our gift mean to him? It's like a parent coming to a child or a child going to a parent. Defy them. Anger them and provoke them and then come on a special occasion and say, I love you. Here's a card and here's the flowers. Here's some money or here's a gift certificate. Of course, no human being wants that. We want the person, their heart, more than the things they have to give with their hands. How much more the living God? So, it had to do with God first. A pleasing aroma comes from a life that says, you know what, God's given some commandments. He's given a lot of commandments. It said that the Jewish law, although it's not specifically stated in the scripture, contains some 613 commandments. Some 248 or so of positive commandments someone's figured this out in some 365 of negative commandments someone said for one day of the year 365 days you're told not to do certain things some people say oh it's all positive you know God is loved and He's forgiving, and I don't like to talk about sin and repentance. It's all done on the cross. I mean, isn't it that Jesus fulfilled the law for us perfectly so we don't have to? No, that's a great misinterpretation. Because the Bible says, when you live a life of love, after you've been washed by Jesus' blood, you are fulfilling the law. You couldn't do it before. Because the heart had to be cleansed. That is, you couldn't do it perfectly. But now you can. What's the difference then? If I was a sinner before I got saved, and I'm still sinning after I got saved, what does that salvation mean at all? It means nothing. That thing uh, in Spanish called pecado. If the pecado is still there, sin is still there, the leaven, what did Jesus do for me anyway? It amounts to nothing, but that would be blasphemy. He did everything on the cross. It depends on the individual. But 613, 613 or so laws and commandments in the Old Testament, some repetitive, it's been said. But in total, about 248 positive and 365 negative. But do you know in the New Testament, someone's calculated, again, there may be repetition, but far more commandments in the New Testament. Some 1,050 commandments in the New Testament. You look at your Bible, you'll see the major chunk or portion of the Bible constitutes the Old Testament from Genesis to Malachi. Within the confines of those 39 books, major portion of any Christian Bible you have some 613 or so laws but within the 27 books that constitute a smaller portion of the Bible you have something approaching twice as many commandments now easy it is for people 
say, well, I don't have to worry about sin because God took care of it. We don't have to worry about it, but we need to make sure it doesn't stick to us anymore because we still have the free will. We're not robots. And we can choose to look toward the far country, like the prodigal, and begin to take some steps that way, get ourselves all dirty. We can never presume that God will just wait for us till we come back. It's a very fatal approach to Christianity. That's to presume upon the grace of God. There's a time in which, like Samson went out, thinking God is with me every day. Look at me doing the great things. Nobody can stop me. One day it says he went out not knowing that God didn't go with him that day. Oh, Lord. He lost his spiritual understanding, spiritual vision. He lost his eyes. He basically forfeited his call. In great pain, he recovered at the very end before he died. Not everybody recovers. We need to be very careful we don't presume upon God's grace and play with our eternal soul's destinies. The first fruits, celebration, dedication to God, acknowledging that God is in charge. Three spring feasts so far, Passover, Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the Feast of the First Fruits. And then we have the Festival of the Harvest, or Feast of Weeks, or Pentecost, seven weeks after, or 50 days afterwards, Pentecost. Summer, Spring-Summer Festival. And then three fall festivals, we'll see. Verse 15, from the day after the Sabbath, the day you bring the bundle of grain to be lifted up as a special offering from the first fruits, count off seven full weeks. It's just a <clears throat> amazingly beautiful how God takes the agricultural society with what they're so familiar with and he corresponds and beautifully times every festival. You know what that shows us? That every season of our lives and everything that goes on in our lives, God is concerned with his watching, but he says to us how to handle these things. We need the word of God. These feasts were not made up by Moses. There are no rabbis. There, was, there were no Sanhedrin. There was no elders. There were no elders that got together, 70 elders. No one did this. God gave it by revelation. And so by revelation we need to know, Lord, what is my life about? What it is, what is it about, Lord? What am I supposed to do? Lord, how do I handle the springtime in my life? How am I supposed to be thankful when I have children that are born, Lord, as a gift from you and heritage? How am I supposed to be dedicated and consecrate them to you and raise them carefully with no unleavened bread, with malice? I should say with no bread, with malice, with unleavened bread. Bread without leaven, Lord. I raise the children uncorrupted from this world. Do my best to cut every avenue where sin is introduced, where they're given the, the freedom that so many people have 
found out is so detrimental. Because the devil has his children everywhere. We cannot be casual and be like the world and say, well, my neighbor is a nice man, nice woman, and their children are pretty nice, so you can go over and sleep over there. Guess what? That sleepover may very well introduce sin to your child, and nobody knows about it until later. Many times the children hang out and play with children who the devil will use to draw your children away from God. But you see, the conventional wisdom of the day is, well, you know, I think they're old enough to be responsible and they, they, they know what to do. We trust them. These are very words that get people into trouble because they don't trust God enough to follow God's counsel. You need to watch your child. You need to discipline the child properly, early. You need to love the child, but you need to protect the child by setting strict boundaries to protect the child because the world is a world full of evil. Many of you can relate to this. You might have mentioned it before, but during the high school, I think junior year of my high school, I was invited by another classmate who seemed like a good kid. And I went from one floor of the apartment building in Brooklyn to another floor to go to this kid's house where he had a computer program back there in the 80s, way advanced of his time. He had his own computer and he had a computer program with questions on a floppy disk, if you remember that. Ancient artifact to store tiny bit of information on these square pancake-like floppy disks thin stackable disks, if you will. And so the excitement was there. He has the inside scoop on the best way to study this. Look, another avenue that I have no knowledge about, but he's willing to let me study with him for the SAT, the exit exam for high school. And that score can determine where you go to, uh, I should say, uh, where you go to high school from actually to college well I went to the house and as soon as I entered into the child's room and he had no mother he had a father who was disabled on the wall right in front of me is a big picture of some so called model and Just ignore that. And he's calling attention to these things. The devil actively working through him. And I'm going and looking at the screen about the SAT questions and what does he put on the screen of the computer? Some perverted cartoon back then. It's hardly animated. But in, in a few moments' time, the enemy who knew the calling God on my life, God had on my life, the enemy who knew how protected I was in my family, how my parents were teaching godly morals, not only culturally, 
but from what they knew of the Bible. In a few moments' time, and my parents never knew what happened. I didn't even know what happened, how to explain it. But I was exposed to certain things that were not good. I wasn't looking for it. And this is what happens. Parents never know, just as you yourself were children. You get exposed to certain things and they have a tremendous potential to damage you internally and draw you away from God. And thankfully, although these things were a shock to my system, God in His mercy He allowed me to be fruitful in bringing people to Himself. And although I was aware more of corruption than I ever was, the end doesn't justify the means. The people will give a testimony and say, I wouldn't have it any other way. It's a horrible thing to say. Because if you lived in sin, that wasn't God's way at all. You see, in the case of Egypt and Israel, it was prophesied. It wasn't because of sin that they went into bondage there. It was a, it was a, like Joseph in prison, there was a route that they had to go through. But a person who has sinned against God in his bondage should never say, and I'm glad I went through those things. No, you rebelled against God. You could have lost your soul. You should never hold it up as a trophy. Let's say, the grace of God brought me out of my delusion, foolishness, and rebellion. And the Apostle Paul says in the book of Titus, we ourselves were also once foolish and disobedient. We say, Lord, thank you. I'm never going back there. And I wish I never was there. And I wouldn't want anyone to go through that path. You don't have to learn how to have a great testimony and glorify God by going through filth. God shows us by the Spirit as we read the Word and hear the Word how to be accurate to glorify God and not to mislead people because people can hear testimonies and begin to think, well, if he ended up that way, she ended up that way, I guess it's not so bad because, look, he was doing what? This drug and that kind of immorality. Look where he is now. He's preaching. He's going all over the world. I guess I'll do that too. No. Many people end up in hell thinking that way. We need to be very careful about how we give our testimony and make sure we always show sinfulness as utter foolishness and rebellion against God. Always point people away from that and say, never presume upon God's grace. But the exposure to sin can cause people to be derailed from their call. So we need to be careful that we raise our children without malice and without introducing them to sin because it will build and build and then people wonder, what happened to my child? How did my child turn out this way? There's a positive and negative aspect to raising children. And to be lopsided or eliminate either one is to cause destruction to the child and cause the child to be destructive. We need to shower them with the love of God. Affirm their worth. Really love them from the heart. 
see them as potential warriors for Christ and soul winners and children who will grow up to be agents of God's love and bringing healing to thousands and millions at the same time a child left to himself brings his mother's shame the Bible says and he that spares the rod hates his child the Bible says Train up a child in the way he should go, the Bible says, and when he's old, he'll not depart from it. The training is not merely exposing them to the Bible and Sunday school and church activities and youth activities and saying grace at the family dinner table and having Christian stickers and posters and bumper stickers and everything's Christian. The only problem is, is the kid a Christian? As you said, the Jews, they could have observed these things, but if the offering doesn't come from a heart that's been transformed and offered up to God before the physical offerings of the produce of the land, of the harvest, then it's no use. But the negative aspect of child-rearing for the glory of God is to keep a very close eye on every decision because the parent is supposed to be the parent, not the child. The parents are given the responsibility for the child's welfare, the soul. It's the parent that lays up for the child. Sacrifices. There are parents who sacrifice like anything I'm sure you've heard just to get the kid into medical school. It's particularly not uncommon in my kind of culture. Education is king. It's God. For many people from my ethnic background. Not for us. By God's grace. Whatever God gives and does, that's all we want. But to pursue it madly, with all kinds of sacrifices, parents working two, three, four jobs. Why? It's all about image and status. And Yes, we care about the child's future. We don't want them to suffer, but the, the level of sacrifice for a temporal benefit. What about the child's eternal destiny and welfare? What about sacrificing sleep and sacrificing dinner dates and Facebook and all kind of things? Why? Just so I can make sure my child is on the course to heaven. That's the greatest accomplishment any parent can ever have and satisfaction forever. Did I raise my child in a godly way and I took time to discipline the child when necessary so the child can go in the path of righteousness. So we see the application in our own lives and any teaching, any advice we give to the children, we have to follow it ourselves otherwise they see right through the hypocrisy. And these feasts the blood, the bread without leaven or yeast, offering the first fruits. Look at the sequence. Isn't it beautiful? Marvelous. I cannot come and offer anything to God. People say, well, I have a God-given talent, so you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to sing for God. If you haven't been washed by the blood of Jesus, God doesn't want your singing. He doesn't want my singing. 
Nothing can come to God without the blood because he's holy. We've been reading that in Leviticus especially. We need to come to him in a way that we're actually acceptable because sin is a reproach. It's a stench in God's nostrils. As I said, well, another example in the Proverbs, it says, a woman without discretion, as we read in the book of Proverbs when we studied it, is like a jewel of gold in the snout of a pig. A swine. A beast has been rolling in the mire, in the sewage, in the mud, looking hideous. Imagine seeing a gold, shiny ring on its nose. Nose ring. Who's going to go near that pig? So a woman who is beautiful, as is inferred there, a beautiful woman without discretion, The inference is, I should say, it's undesirable. Before God, it's no use. It doesn't matter what cosmetics and what kind of haircut and what kind of change goes for the man too or any child, any one of us. External transformation doesn't change the person one bit before God. But a heart change is everything to God. So the blood washes us to turn us from pigs to lambs by miracle of God's grace, innocent, blameless, through the blood of sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And then because of that, I can now live a holy life. And because I'm living a holy life, I can offer to God pleasing sacrifices and offerings. When God sees these things, we're ready to get filled with the Spirit of God. As we see in the festival of the harvest, the Feast of Weeks, Shavuot, or Pentecost. From the day after the Sabbath, verse 15, Leviticus 23, verse 15, the day you bring the bundle of grain to be lifted up as a special offering, count off seven full weeks. Keep counting until the day after the Sabbath, seventh Sabbath, 50 days later. Then present an offering of new grain to the Lord. From wherever you live, bring two loaves of bread to be lifted up before the Lord as a special offering. Make these loaves from four quarts of choice flour. Notice this, and bake them with yeast. So this shows that many people say, well, yeast is nothing but bad in the Bible. Not always. As we mentioned, the parable the Lord told about the kingdom of God. And also here, they're lifting up now, they're not sacrificing on the altar, but they're lifting, lifting up these two loaves. In the festival of the harvest. But this one is baked with yeast. These loaves. They will be an offering to the Lord from the first of your crops. Is there an inconsistency here? Is there a confusion? As we said, the first rule when you approach Scripture is to remember it's the word of the living God. We need to remember the author of the scriptures is the Holy Spirit, is God himself. We need to remember that we are in the dark about everything until God gives us light. We need to remember we need to grow in understanding. 
anything that seems to be contradictory or inconsistent, we need to come to God and say, Lord, I don't understand. You know, Lord. But please help me to understand, and God will. Some have said this is speaking of the resurrection where even though we have this spiritual resurrection from death, we get born again, blood is washed us, we've been sanctified by the blood, justified, sanctified, and uh, we're able to present ourselves a living sacrifice to God, and yet we have a flesh, don't we? They say that typifies, or is typified by the East. That even though we're in a body that still is prone to be tempted, note the distinction very carefully, not prone to sin. There's a popular hymn as written in it, prone to wander. No, 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 no. God didn't save us and leave us prone to wander that we can't help ourselves. That false doctrine is the reason why so many people living in sin and thinking, well, that's the scriptural doctrine. No, that's a lie from the devil. He saved us with a holy calling to live a holy life exclusively, entirely, absolutely consecrated to the God of holiness and new life. But we have the potential to sin if we give in to it. And that's very different from saying, I'm prone to wander. Prone to wander has a connotation or the allusion to a person who can't help themselves. You know, sometimes I go excessive on these things and I have to repent and you know I get some damage and it's a cycle you see nobody's perfect that's only for people who believe that's the kind of God they serve an imperfect God because you can't have a perfect God who gave a perfect sacrifice to redeem you perfectly to sanctify you perfectly gave you a perfect word perfect commandments and we end up living, what somebody said, sloppy agape. Sloppy grace. It's not really biblical grace at all. Because the grace of God teaches us to say no, no, no. Every single time ungodliness comes knocking at our door. That's the grace of God. You can read that in the book of Titus. This will be an offering to the Lord from the first of your crops. In verse 18, Leviticus 23, 18. So we've seen three feasts. Now we're on the fourth one, Pentecost. Along with the bread, present seven one-year-old male lambs with no defects, one young bull and two rams as burnt offerings to the Lord. These burnt offerings together with the grain offerings and liquid offerings will be a special gift, a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Notice the indication here continually that it has to be a pleasing aroma to the Lord. If they did it just right and their hearts were right, there's no problem whatsoever. It's pleasing to the Lord. And that's our great consolation and and objective, that everything we do should be pleasing to God. Even if we messed up, as I prayed in the beginning, 
God comes to believers, yes, us, for our families. He still loves us. Even if we feel like, Lord, the weight of everything is coming in on me. Lord, I tried, but now I see maybe I didn't try the way you told me to try. Maybe there were loopholes, Lord. Maybe I didn't do everything the way you told me to do. God doesn't come in hammers and say it's over for you. Oh, God. Is there hope? As we heard on Sunday, can these dry bones live, Lord? Yes. God's Spirit can make a complete change. Oh, He can recover. He can restore. He can do things that we never dreamed possible. But we need to come extremely humbly at His feet and say, Lord, forgive me of all of my sins, my contribution to the problem. It does no good to point fingers like Eve did and Adam did. We need to say, Lord, in actuality, Lord, you come and search me, Lord. You review my life of how I lived and how I did and how I contributed to the problem. And I'm so sorry, Lord. Please forgive me. Lord, if you let me do it all over again, I promise I'll listen to every single word you say and do it right. But it's too late. And now I need your miracle, Lord, to redeem myself and my people. Lord, turn everything around, Jesus. The first step is to do what? Come back to the blood. Wash me. Thoroughly, Lord, purge me. David sinned, that's what he said, wash me, Lord, with his sin. I shall be whiter than snow. Use, Lord, that brush to put on the doorframe of my heart. The blood applied, Lord, and cleanse me. Pass over, Lord, would you pass over? Let death not come, Lord. Let destruction not come to me and my family. Please, Lord, I need the blood. I plead the blood. Oh, forgive me, Lord. I'm truly sorry the things I've done wrong. I've misused your grace, Lord. And God will take us. What he'll do? He'll cleanse us so we can once again be that unleavened bread with no malice. He only can do that. Only he can do it. He's so gracious and so powerful. I can have a clear conscience again. Then I can offer to God again worship. And then because I'm sincere and I've repented, did a, not a 360, which means you end up where you started, but a 180. I turned away completely, Lord, from my folly. As a Christian, people can go back to sin. We should be very careful. We never falsely encourage anyone to say, you'll come back. Many people don't come back. We need to warn them, you need to get out right now wherever you are, just like the children of Israel left Egypt in a hurry, and so the matzah, that bread that was flat with no yeast, they had to commemorate, you see, that's one of the things, in order for them, or I should say, when they didn't observe, and should they find leaven or bake any bread with leaven, you know what they're doing? The Lord gave this revelation to me as I was looking at it recently. Didn't read it anywhere. But the leaven that signified their departure from Egypt bondage in a hurry. They didn't have time to put yeast and wait for the bread to rise. 
keeping the sandals on the feet, their belt girded, ready for flight. That bread signified hasty departure from Egypt, which if you would do a diagram, mental diagram, you have an arrow pointing up or a line pointing up from that incident. The face value explanation, if you will, of the flatbread matzah. No yeast. Because they had to leave in a hurry. No time for the bread to rise. Well, that really stemmed out of a bigger picture, which is God told them to leave Egypt in a hurry. You see the context? It wasn't just, well, we decided to leave in a hurry. We didn't have time. But how did all this happen? God told me to do this. And God said also, as a memorial of this event, you have to observe this feast of unleavened bread for your generations. The connection is, if a person would presume to use even a tiny pinch of yeast, they're actually denying God. This is how big of a deal it is. I never read this anywhere, but this is the revelation God gave me. Maybe somebody's written about it, but it just brings everything into perfect perspective because we think, well, as Jews would do today, at the Passover Seder and these festivals, well, this is the way we do things, you know, like any culture. Mommy, why do you do well, this is the way we do it? You know, because it's the way the cooking is going to come out and this is what we do when your relatives come. This is how we celebrate this and that. It's much more than ritual, much more than culture, much more than national practices connected to God. Because you see, for them not to observe the elimination of yeast in that bread but introduce it is to deny God altogether. Because if you deny the acts of God, the miracle that God did, you're denying God himself because God is known by his wonders. He's known by his acts. His revelation of himself is through his word and in demonstration of that word. The way he saves, the way he delivers. So when he institutes something like the Passover, when he institutes the Passover and then the Feast of the Unleavened Bread, and then the Feast of the First Fruits, sequentially, then the Harvest or the Feast of Weeks, Pentecost. In all of this, to tamper with anything he said, the more we get closer to God, the more he'll show us how tremendously significant these things are, connecting to the very person of God himself, his integrity, his faithfulness, his person, his nature. Verse 19, then you must offer one male goat as a sin offering and two one-year-old male lambs as a peace offering. The priest will lift up the two lambs as a special offering to the Lord, together with the loaves representing the first of your crops. These offerings, which are holy to the Lord, belong to the priests. That same day will be proclaimed an official day for Holy Assembly 
a day on which you do no ordinary work. This is a permanent law for you and it must be observed from generation to generation where you live. When you harvest the crops of your land, do not harvest the grain along the edges of your fields and do not pick up what the harvesters drop. Once again, we see the provision. We've read this before. The love of God. Leave it for the poor and the foreigners living among you. I am the Lord your God. You have celebration. You know, people have stuff. Christians have the wherewithal to celebrate Thanksgiving and Christmas. It's about me, my family, my people, my children, my spouse, my parents. God says, don't forget the poor. Don't mistreat the foreigner. Remember who you were. You were a foreigner in a strange land. In other words, don't do to others what was done to you by people who were mean. Don't say, well, I went through this rough thing. You have to do it too. No, be gracious. Jesus died for us. He didn't call each of us to be crucified in that manner. But because of his crucifixion, we can crucify ourselves, spiritually speaking, and depart from the leaven, the malice, all evil. Leave it for the poor and the foreigners living among you. I am the Lord your God. God is a God of love. His whole law, you see love, 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 love. Love how? With all these negative laws, don't do this, don't do that. His love protects. Just like a parent says, don't go swimming. When there's lightning outside, don't go swimming or don't go playing under the tree oh mom all negative 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 don't do this don't do that because of love to protect and then love to provide you know what we see in the feasts remember these three words we see in the seven feasts of Israel commemorating events that have been are occurring and will be, yet to be. We see three things. God's protection, God's provision, and God's miraculous wonders. Transformation of our lives. Preparation for heaven. Because of his love. Of his love. The next feast or festival looked at four so far. We have three more. Now, the three fall festivals or fall feasts. The festival or feast of trumpets. The Lord said to Moses, give the following instructions to the people of Israel. On the first day of the appointed month in early autumn, you are to observe a day of complete rest. Notice how the Sabbath that was introduced before the feasts were talked about here or being talked about in Leviticus 23. From God, there's the offering, there's the rest. There's a total dedication to God. It's not an isolated thing. The lives are following a certain course. You see, when we get born again, just like the children of Israel were redeemed, they're on a completely different course. Every detail of their lives is connected to the living God, Yahweh, the creator of the universe. They're back. What was lost in the Garden of Eden is being restored. 
much more for the believer today because Jesus has paid the ultimate sacrifice. We've been cleansed. We've been prepared, a holy offering to the Lord, a holy temple. And so everything involves that Sabbath to the Lord. I'm in a period of rest for the rest of my life, for the rest of eternity. Because my sins, the leaven has been dealt with by His crucifixion. And I am keeping myself sanctified. I'm keeping myself in the love of God. God won't do that for me that He says for me to do. He'll do His part. But I have to make sure I don't go looking for that leaven. I don't go looking for sin. I don't remain passive when sin comes and act scared and say, well, I couldn't handle it. I have to fight fiercely to make sure there's no sin in my life with the help of God. Only then can I be a pleasing sacrifice. Well, the Feast of Trumpets, not surprisingly, had the blast of the trumpet. And of course, the trumpet back then was not a trumpet like we know it. It was from the ram's horn. And later on, they would have silver trumpets. But the trumpets traditionally, that we read about is the shofar blast and these ram's horns. And they were to blow these, uh, this trumpet with these loud blasts. And this is what God said. It's a holy convocation. It's a memorial. It's a time in which you are to dedicate to the Lord and it speaks of the rapture when the last trump will be blown as the Bible says God will descend Christ will descend and there will be a, a shout but here it says the seventh month and the first day of the month is memorial he shall do no work but you shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord Leviticus 23 this trumpets or trumpet blast blown to announce the beginning of this festival. Everything was timed exactly. And as we mentioned, with the calendar year of Israel, God has permanently instituted this. Three spring feasts, then spring, hyphen, summer. You have the Pentecost. And now, the first of the three fall feasts, the Feast of Trumpets. And the Lord spoke to Moses. Be careful to celebrate the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, 
which recently passed. On the tenth day of that same month, nine days after the feast or festival of trumpets, you must observe it as an official day for holy assembly, a day to deny yourselves and present special gifts to the Lord. Do no work during that entire day because it is the day of atonement when offerings of purification are made for you, making you right with the Lord your God. All who do not deny themselves that day will be cut off from God's people. And I will destroy anyone among you who does any work on that day. You must not do any work at all. This is a permanent law for you, and it must be observed from generation to generation, wherever you live. Now we know from the book of Exodus and also from Leviticus, as the day the high priest went in with the blood, to make that atonement for the nation. And after the rapture and the biblical chronology of prophetic events, we see that the nation, as it says in Zechariah, the nation will look upon him who they pierced. And in Romans it says, And so all Israel shall be saved. Whoever is remaining in Israel at that time after Jacob's trouble the tribulation they will accept that he's the one that atoned for our souls. He's, he was the Messiah. He was the Messiah. The nation missed him as a whole but they're going to mourn and weep. We pierced him. We crucified him. He's the one. Look at him. He's coming. The second coming. And after that will be the Feast of Booths or Shelters or Tabernacles. After the Day of Atonement where God will permanently dwell intimately as you can get. Forever. In His very presence. As it says in Revelation, the Lord will be the temple There will be no need of light or temple because he will be the temple. He will be the light. The New Jerusalem. But continuing with this, next to the last of the seven feasts, this feast called Yom Kippur Day of Atonement. So this will be a Sabbath day of complete rest for you on that day. And on that day you must deny yourselves. There's a definite thorough repentance on that day. You can see in the synagogues and uh, especially by the Wailing Wall in Israel, you see it all the time, people going there and uh, stuffing papers with prayers into the crevices of the walls. You see soldiers there, Israeli soldiers, all kinds of people, rabbis and youngsters, all kinds of people, visitors. But especially on the Day of Atonement, It will be a tremendous, solemn day. And yet it is a a memorial, it's an observation, it's a, a day to be remembered. In the midst of these festivals, you have this observation. 
This day of rest will begin at sundown on the ninth day of the month and extend until sundown on the tenth day. They had the Jewish calendar, the religious calendar, then they had the civil calendar, and then when, when they went to Babylon, they adopted those names for the calendar months, and so there's a two different, at least two different or three calendar observances. And yet the festivals and the seasons never change. Even though the month's name, such as this month, Tishri, seventh month. May change from the original Hebrew month that was given. The seasons never change. The spacing apart of the festivals don't change. The correspondence to the harvest don't change. The meaning, above all, the prophetic meaning never changes. The final feast or festival God gave after the Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of Trumpets, I should say the Feast of the First Fruits, and then the Pentecost, then the Feast of Trumpets, and the Day of Atonement. Now the Feast or Festival of Booths, Shelters, or Tabernacles, meaning dwelling. They commemorated the building of this little shelter. They still do it today. Made with certain branches, certain coverings for that makeshift shelter to remember how they dwelt in the wilderness in tents. They didn't have a permanent place. So they recall the history to know their identity which connects to God, how God led them. You see, everything we do, our celebrations, whether it's the birthday, whether it's the graduation, whatever we do, if God is not in the picture, and not only in the picture, but in the center, is not only meaningless, do you realize it becomes blasphemous? It becomes blasphemous because there's no acknowledging of the very one who gave us life and that achievement or that benefit. He's the one. Every good and perfect gift comes from the Father of lights with whom there's no shadow of turning or variableness with whom there is no variableness or shadow turning. Everything comes from Him. Everything we do in our families, every achievement, every benefit, we should remember the festival of the first fruits. We should wave it before the Lord. Say, Lord, after all, it's from You. We love You. We thank You. You may be in the midst of a heathen company. maybe may be your own relatives. To open your mouth and say, glory be to God. You know, without God, this wouldn't happen. You may have sneers and jeers and people looking like you're a fanatic. Well, if that's the case, maybe you shouldn't be there in the first place. But if God wants you to be there, you better open your mouth and give glory to God. Otherwise, you'll be part of the blasphemy. This is the truth if we understand it. It's not some legalistic or private interpretation. 
if God is such a great God and He gives us everything we have, that's good. We cannot do a thing without Him. We can't breathe without Him. Is it too far-fetched to think that at a graduation party, at a, a party for promotion or retirement, at a celebration, at a birthday, of a birthday, anything and everything, not lip service either, like people did during the Persian Gulf War, I remember at that time catching some glimpses of some awards from this perishing world for some achievement. I think it was the Grammys or some music thing at that time. This was many, many years ago. They put up the V sign and say, peace in the Middle East. I thank God for this. And what are they singing? Vulgar things, flaunting themselves. No connection to God. Well, that's how God sees people, Christians, who say, well, my conscience bothers me. i got to say something about God. So, you know, I just want to thank God and let's continue with the festivities. What about praying, a sincere prayer before God and forgetting about the people? Saying, you know, we may not think about this, but it's because of God's mercy that we're here. No matter how they react, you open your mouth and you give glory to God. You let light set the tone for the atmosphere and not darkness. We're not supposed to be overtaken by the darkness. We're supposed to be the light. And if the darkness is very thick in its place, we need to value whether we should be there in the first place, whether God wants us to be there. Yes, light does dispel darkness, but we're not called to go into every area and every celebration and every activity. As I said about children, uh, the parents being pressured into conforming to societal norms. Well, they're going to this and they're going to the prom and this. What does it signify? Think about that. What does this mean? Nothing should be meaningless in our lives. Now, say it again. I've said before. Growing up in this culture, in this country. Feeling the pressure of society. Wanting to be among the people. Things that we think are harmless, such as the prom. Is that the person the child is going to get married to? How often do you hear that everyone that goes to the prom together, as if they're married, you know, the whole trappings of that appears like they're together, and these are children after all. How many of them really get married? Truth be told. What business do they have touching each other and thinking that they're made for each other? Is it trial and error? Is it like animals that people have to go trial and error? Or is there a God that has formed someone for each person to fulfill His will? Especially Christians to understand much like we know about Halloween. Hardly anybody considers the prom. Well, the devil has brought certain things. And how many kids sin that very night, the very day, the entire activity? 
often is a lustful endeavor and vain endeavor. And it's a provision from parents for fornication and evil. Somebody says, well, not everybody does that, you know. Why test the waters, as they say? Why tempt the Lord? But if it's somebody who has been praying and they know that this person is virtuous and they're called to glorify God together, the parent who is a believer has that confidence that I've been praying, the child's praying, the child has kept himself or herself, and the other person is a believer and they're not going to be equally unyoked or unequally yoked, I should say. I should say. Unequally yoked. And they are understanding as they've been praying, this is God's will, that at the right time, after perhaps a courtship, after engagement, all these things that are wise, these children will glorify God at the appointed time, just like these festivals, season in life, not prematurely. It will be God's perfect time. Be glorious. Rather than it has been and used and recycled. Well, we may hear these words and feel this is very sharp and this is very convicting and this is I want to share with you the beauty of God's heart as I prayed in the beginning. The mess ups in our lives, the wrong understanding and being sucked into the culture and trying to Christianize it instead of having nothing to do with certain practices doesn't make any sense it actually draws people away from God and causes condemnation and defiles and a waste as a secondary consideration of money and time and energy emotionally Investing in things that not only not matter, but cause damage, cause delusion and deception. Well, the blood is still there. We can come. We can come to God's presence and say, Lord, we messed up. Here's the animal, the sacrifice. And Lord Jesus, will you cover me with your precious blood? Forgive me, Lord. Forgive us. Cleanse us, Lord. Never again will I endorse any practice that is not from heaven in my home or my generation. That's the beautiful thing that can happen out of what we're hearing. To really understand God's will in every single occasion. Well, let's continue as we are going to close here. This final feast of shelters speaking of God's tabernacling with us the feast of trumpets the day of atonement that is the day of the national restoration of Israel whoever is remaining at the time the Lord comes second coming and the final descent of almighty God the final descent of almighty God to tabernacle with us as it says in Revelation I will be their God He'll literally come down and be with us forever. We'll be with him in the New Jerusalem. These three are yet to be fulfilled. We're on a calendar. We're on a timeline. 
from around 1446 to 47 BC when these feasts were first introduced to the people in sequence. God's calendar has been rolling. The events have been happening. Christ has been fulfilling these shadows or foreshadows of the program and plan of salvation for all mankind. All who believe. Come through the blood. Been sanctified. Able to present sacrifices. The Passover, Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the Feast of First Fruits. And then waiting on the Lord for the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Filled to overflowing. Looking forward to what? After Pentecost, the Feast of Trumpets, the Rapture. God will call us up to be with Him forever. As is written in Thessalonians, we'll meet Him in the midair, and so shall we be ever with the Lord. The Rapture. And then, the Day of Atonement, Israel's plan, unfinished business, God keeping His covenant to the very end. The entire nation will be saved. Not as we know today, but the ones who are remaining at that time who look on the one whom they pierced. Just like the prophet said. In the book of Zechariah, they will look on him whom they crucified. The nation of it, the Jews. They will see and mourn. Zechariah 12.10, we read this. Now pour upon the house of David. This is following Armageddon. The destruction of the nation that come against Jerusalem in that valley of Megiddo. Now pour upon the house of David, Zechariah 12.10, and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplications, and they shall look upon me whom they have pierced. This is Jesus speaking, first person. They look on me whom they pierced, crucified, and they shall mourn for him as one mourneth for his only son, or the father. They're going to mourn for him, my son, and shall be in bitterness for him as one that is in bitterness for his firstborn. There'll be great mourning in the valley of Megiddo. God will separate the people because verse 1 of chapter 13, Zechariah says, in that day, there should be a fountain opened to the house of Israel. A fountain. And to the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for uncleanness. The whole nation, the day of atonement, will be saved. And then, Jew and Gentile, all redeemed, one new man, one church, one bride. The wife of the Lamb. The new Jerusalem made up of redeemed people will have God himself come and tabernacle with them. Not temporarily, as the tabernacle in the wilderness, but permanently, because the glorification would have been consummated. We would be just like him, having a glorified body like Jesus has. Perfect communion perfect love, perfect harmony, joy unspeakable. You see, the feasts 
point to the identity. The feasts point to our lifestyle, our purpose. The feasts point to the consummation, the completion of God's entire plan for us. He's made us beautiful by His blood that was shed for us, by the work of His Holy Spirit, by this fountain, this living water like we read in Ezekiel on Sunday. Sprinkling that water to give us new hearts and live for Him. Praise be to the Lord. We're going to just conclude reading these verses here. Final verses. These Let's go to verse 36. Seven days you shall offer... Let's switch to the New Living Translation. Seven days you must present special gifts to the Lord. The eighth day is another holy day on which Pardon me one moment while I disable this alarm here. Actually coming from the other room. Leviticus 23.36 For seven days you must present special gifts to the Lord. The eighth day is another holy day on which you present your special gifts to the Lord. This will be a solemn occasion and no ordinary work may be done on that day. That day. Verse 37. These are the Lord's appointed festivals. Celebrate them each year as official days for holy assembly by presenting special gifts to the Lord. Burnt offerings, grain offerings, sacrifices, and liquid offerings each on its proper day. Now what do we do today to show thanksgiving to God? We give our whole lives. We say, Lord, my whole life is an offering to you. I worship you. And we give our substance. Beginning with the tithe. The tenth of all that comes into the house. By God's mercy. A tenth of it. Giving the first of everything to the Lord. Take the tenth off the top. Give the first day of the week. The first portion. The best portion to the Lord. In honor of Him who gave everything to us. After the tithe, the offerings. Whatever God has given beyond the tenth, that He gives us that ability to voluntarily give, to honor Him, His work. But the main idea is that we give our lives by obedience to His commandments, fulfilling the gospel commission, the great mandate to go and tell people about Jesus. Pray for them. Bring them in to the place where they can learn about Jesus more. They can learn how to live for Him, having been saved by Him. That's how we offer our lives. We give it away, living to please God and, and representing Him everywhere we go, everywhere. These festivals, pardon me, these festivals must be observed in addition to the Lord's regular Sabbath days. And the offerings are in addition to your personal gifts. The offerings you give to fulfill your vows and the voluntary offerings you present to the Lord. Remember that this seven-day festival to the Lord, the festival of shelter, this final festival, now they added two more later on, Purim, 
which obviously was not discussed here. It was in the time of Esther, Queen Esther, and then the Feast of Dedication or Festival of Lights, Hanukkah, when between the Testaments there was a revolt by the Jewish family of the Maccabees. The Festival of Lights, the ninth feast that they celebrate, was the uh, intertestamental period when there was a Maccabean revolt, revolt by a family called the Maccabees, who was zealous for the Lord, against the enemies who were trying to take over, and they, did, they took over the temple, and then they fought, the Jews did, and recovered it, and they dedicated the temple back to God. And that was the temple uh, festival, festival of dedication, that's alluded to in the Gospel of John. Jesus went on such an occasion saying, I'm the light of the world. Fulfilling that. And of course, of course, Purim also. We can see how he delivered us from destruction when the enemy wanted wholesale destruction of us and our families. The Lord came to our rescue. The Lord stepped up like Mordecai. Got the word to Queen Esther who sacrificed. She fasted. She sought the Lord. The Lord paid the ultimate, ultimate price to save us from genocide of the devil. All of these feasts, these seven mentioned here, in addition to the two others that were added later on, they all point to Jesus Christ. all point to our lives, every aspect of our lives, in our salvation. The festival of shelters begins on the 15th day of the appointed month. After you have harvested all the produce of the land. You see, it's an offering. It's a thanksgiving to God. It's an honoring of the Lord. Everything, every promotion, every achievement, everything that comes in, into your hands, into my hands. We hold it up and say, Oh Lord, Oh Father, because of your love I have this. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for your care, constant care, and magnify you with everything I am and everything you've given me. The first day and the eighth day of the festival will be days of complete rest. On the first day, gather branches from magnificent trees, palm fronds, boughs from leafy trees and willows that grow by the streams. Then celebrate with joy before the Lord your God seven days for seven days. This is the tabernacle uh, festival. You must observe this festival to the Lord for seven days every year. This is a permanent law for you and it must be observed in the appointed month from generation to generation. Why is it permanent? They can never forget where they came from and who it is that delivered them. And the fact that God is going to tabernacle with us permanently one day very soon. Hallelujah. For seven days, verse 42 of Leviticus 23, you must live outside in little shelters. All native-born Israelites must live in shelters. This remind each new generation of Israelites that I made their ancestors live in shelters when I rescued them from the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So Moses gave the Israelites these instructions regarding the annual festivals of the Lord. Passover. When the Israelites were saved from Egypt by the blood of the Lamb on their doorframe. It's fulfilled by Jesus dying on the cross for us, shedding his blood Washing our hearts clean, Revelation 1.5. The Feast of Unleavened Bread, when they were to eat the matzah, the flat bread without yeast, for one week, was fulfilled by the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom, as a sacrifice, 
his body was pure and sinless. Although he bore our sins and became sin for us, he himself knew no sin. And therefore he was qualified to pay for our sins. His body, he said, this bread is my body which is broken for you. Fulfilled. The feast of first fruits, which was the spring harvest, the barley harvest, and they were sacrificing, offering that to the Lord in recognition of what he's given them. Fulfilled in the resurrection of Jesus. He came out of the tomb on the third day. Resurrected. And so we have been washed by Jesus' blood, sanctified and brought to new life. The Feast of Harvest or the Weeks, Feast of Weeks or Shavuot, Pentecost. The Summer Harvest with many different crops fulfilled in Acts chapter 2 as the Holy Spirit is poured out on Pentecost 50 days after the resurrection. Seven weeks after that. The Feast of Trumpets the Day of Atonement and Tabernacle is yet to be fulfilled. Trumpets, the rapture. God will draw the church into the midair. What did that originally signify for the Israelites? The trumpet blast would call everybody to gather together for another harvest celebration. God will gather people into the kingdom of God to gather the elect the Feast of Trumpets, then national Israel, they will mourn for God's son who they pierced and the nation will be saved. Day of Atonement when the blood was offered for the nation by the high priest once a year. On that day they'll see the blood was offered at Calvary, taken up to the mercy seat in heaven in the ark up there in heaven. Offered Israel's redemption they will actually benefit from that as a nation after the rapture, after the tribulation, Jacob's trouble. And then finally, the harvest celebration, this festival of booths or shelters or tabernacles, when originally it was pointing to the temporary shelters they had in the wilderness as they journeyed with God. They were to remember God kept them. He provided for them miraculously and protected them. And they saw his wonders, victories in the wilderness through God being very, very concerned about them and guiding them. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. And he's going to come down and live with us the consummation of history. That's the final thing that will happen. We'll be rejoicing with God's presence, in God's presence. We will see him face to face and live with him forever. Hallelujah. As we've seen the application in our lives, how to keep our lives unleavened, without malice, without sin, without any filth. We stay completely separate from everything that is against God. Every practice, every habit, every pastime, every hobby, every association, but we don't leave the world. As the Apostle Paul said by the Holy Spirit, you have to do business with people who are fornicators and swindlers and all kinds of people, perverts and murderers. God didn't say leave the world, but 
you don't become their friends and have fellowship with them and sit with them. And uh, that is not to say you don't have dinner or lunch with them, but you don't learn their ways. You don't spend time with them. And the whole purpose is for you to be a light. They need to conform. They need to turn. And you pray. It's the work of the Holy Spirit to convict. But the objective is I don't go there for a good time and I always remember they're on the course to hell. And I have to be burdened and love them and pray for them and make sure my life reflects the light of Jesus so that they can be attracted to the light and be saved. And yet, the Apostle also says by the Holy Spirit, don't have lunch with anyone who calls himself a brother who is sleeping around. Don't even have lunch with them. You see? Keep hypocrisy away. Don't entertain it. Don't go and uh, love on someone who's cursing God to the face, saying, I'm a believer, but I won't do what God says. I'll serve the devil. If you're going to love on them, you're going to tell them. You are in a dark place. You need to get out of that. God loves you too much, and that's why he sent me to warn you. Come out. Don't play with sin. They'll take you to hell. Oh, but I'm saved. I'm saved by grace. You're only saved as long as you abide in Christ. Read John 15. You need to get out of sin and stick with Christ because no one goes to heaven no matter how long they've been saved who tries to bring sin into heaven. You tell them the truth. For our purposes this morning, we're reminded to keep ourselves away, away, away from all kinds of evil and sin. Keep your garments undefiled. Set your sights on the day when Jesus will return very soon. And then we will live with them forever. Praise God. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your loving kindness. We thank you, Lord, for showing us, Lord. In Leviticus 23, Heavenly Father, not only the historical significance, the prophetic significance, but the present immediate significance for our lives. How, Lord, we need to stay in your program. We need to stay, Lord, in your perfect plan. We need to, Lord celebrate, Lord, and, and thank you and honor you with everything we are, everything we have, everything we do, Lord. I thank you that you're schooling us as you school them, Lord, at the foot of the mountain, so at the foot of the cross, all the wonderful things God has provided for us in teaching us about these festivals, these feasts. Oh, glory be to you, Lord. I pray, Lord, that your power will go forth with each and every person as we, Lord, seek to celebrate your good name, your holy name. Lord, in the midst of a darkness of this world, midst, midst of a crooked and perverse generation, a blasphemous generation, Lord, help us to stand our ground, to love you and love people enough to not compromise the truth, nor to participate in any sinful activity, but to be pure, undefiled in the way visiting orphans and widows in their affliction, helping the people, Father, who are needy, people who are oppressed, showing the love of Christ, Lord, being Jesus to them by mercy and keeping ourselves unspotted from the filthy world. We thank you, Lord. We thank you, Lord. Thank you for your straightforward instruction on how to be an overcomer and to be a pleasing aroma to you, Lord. 
We thank you that each one of us can do that today. In Jesus' mighty name, we thank you. Amen.